Hey folks, this is Kevin and the dogs barking in my neighborhood. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear David Crab. All the people around me, like 40 of them, in their little white masks, they just run after her, right? And I just am like, mm, I don't do crowds. No, no. That and more. But before that, are you looking to spice things up in the bedroom? Have you been fantasizing? about surprising your lover with an adventurous new toy or an adult movie? Well, here is an offer that you won't be able to resist. Go to adamandeve.com. For a limited time only, you will get 50% off just about any item, and they have so much to choose from. When you select your one item at 50% off, you'll also receive a free sex swing. You can hang your swing on your door... And hold on tight for a hell of a ride. And to top it off, they'll throw in free shipping. And hey, you always need stuff like condoms and lube. I see they now have this new super popular toy called the Satisfier Pro for the ladies that simulates cunnilingus. I don't know, but it looks pretty interesting. So get 50% off one item when you type RISK for the offer code at the checkout. You'll get your free sex swing, your free shipping. Use the offer code RISK at adamandeve.com. Also, you know, for the past six years, probably, we at RISK and the Story Studio have been using stamps.com. I can mail any letter or package super conveniently by just using my own computer and printer and then the mailman picks it up you know we have all kinds of letters and packages that we have to send back and forth with our business and stamps.com just makes it incredibly efficient to do so it's all the services of the u.s postal service at your fingertips you buy and print official u.s postage for any letter or package or any class of mail with your own computer and printer they make it easy because they give you that digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage they'll help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs there's no need to lease an expensive postage meter and no long-term commitments so right now you too can enjoy the stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and that digital scale. So go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is julian lodge behind me now and we're calling this week's episode am i doing this right three stories from freak three golly 
Let's try that again. Three stories from three different Risk Live shows in three different cities. In a little bit, we're going to hear from a wonderful young lady named Elena. Uh, She shared such a courageously intimate and revealing story. Her first time sharing a story on stage when we last visited Washington, D.C. But before that, we're going to hear from someone who is super near and dear to our hearts. He works with us on the Risk staff, helping people prepare their stories. Brad Lawrence has been on the Moth Radio Hour. He's a co-producer of The Liar Show here in New York, and he's done his solo show, The Gospel of Cheryl and Finn, all over the country. Here he is now at the first ever Risk Live show at Caveat on the Lower East Side in Manhattan, where we are now doing the show once a month. Here's Brad Lawrence with a story we call The Last Dance. It is the 80s, it is the 8th grade, um, it is lunchtime, and I am in the cafeteria at the nerd table, which is where I belong. Um, but I think when I tell people I was a nerdy kid, I think what they picture in their head is a sort of adorably precocious child with vintage glasses who's just trying to help his single dad find love. Um, or they picture like a... a like. The band of scrappy outsiders, you know, like from a Stephen uh, King novel or, or like from Stranger Things, you know? And like neither of these things uh, were the case for me. Um, I, I was not adorable. I was a fat kid uh, with Coke bottle glasses, acne braces, and a mullet, which I did not realize was optional. Um... And as far as the the band of scrappy misfits, like, I didn't have, there wasn't, like, a band of friends around me because that's not being a nerd, that's having a happy childhood. Um, What I learned about being a nerd when I was a kid was that when you were a nerd, you were on your own. You might go to school with other kids who were early adopters of they might be Giants fandom, Um, but when uh, Bobby the kid who had the mustache in the sixth grade came looking for someone to pound uh, down the hallway, they would disappear uh, because there was no throwing your lot in with the others to overcome something. Throwing your lot in just sort of made you a bigger target or next in line. So there was no backup. You were on your own. Now, there was a place we would all gather on occasion. Um, It was not a place of solace or refuge. It was more or less a place where uh, the competing currents of jocks and popular kids and bullies had sort of uh, forced us to coalesce, like that, like that big island of plastic trash in the middle of the ocean. Uh, we were like that, um, but with cartoon character t-shirts and husky jeans. Uh, and that was the nerd table in the cafeteria, and that's where I am with the other nerds, and we are talking 85% chance we're talking about Robotech. And uh, suddenly, a note lands on the table in front of me. And it is a standard issue middle school note folded over six or eight times, a college rule paper ripped out of a spiral binder. And I look to see where this comes from, and I see Amanda Stump walking away from me. And I look back at the note, and all the other nerd kids are looking at the note, waiting for me to open it up and see what it says. And I do, and I read it, and it says, I like you, 
Do you like me? Check yes or no with corresponding boxes. And I look back at Amanda, and she is now on the far side of the cafeteria, standing with her friends, and they are looking at me and giggling and whispering to themselves. And Amanda is beautiful. She is uh, this lithesome, blonde, clear-complexioned, creamy-skinned, green-eyed, otherworldly creature who seems to have descended from a higher plane down to this earthly one for the sole purpose of torturing and humiliating me. Um, Because... (laughs) We all know this note is bullshit. I know it. All the other nerds know it. We are nerds. We live on pop culture. We have seen all of the after-school specials. We have seen all the, all the uh, special episodes of Facts of Life. We know how this goes, right? We know what this is. And so now one of the other nerds looks at me, immediately registering the conundrum, and he says, what are you going to do? And I understand what he's asking me. Because this is not, like, the end of something. When you're a bullied kid, you can sense when, like, a, something big is coming, and I know this one's going to last days. And when you are the subject of this kind of thing, you have two options, basically. You can kind of play along so that when the other humiliating shoe finally drops and they're all pointing and laughing at you, you can laugh, too, as if you were in on the joke the whole time, which no one believes. Um, and that one just always struck me as a pathetic route to take because basically it's like what could be more sad than playing a fat pimply Renfield to a bunch of you know beautiful popular Draculas you know but the other option isn't great either because the other option is you can stand your ground and say no I'm this is a trick and I know it's a trick and I'm not gonna fall for it at which point they'll say how dare you question the sincerity of my of my feelings for you why would you assume that I'm lying to you which leaves you with the job of making a case for why you are too repellent and undesirable for them to like you and that seems like a pyrrhic victory at best But now as Rob says this to me, a sudden third way sort of hits me like a bolt out of the blue. And I look at Rob and I say, I am going to do nothing. And I'm waiting for Rob to look at me like, that plan's so crazy it might just work. And instead he just stares at me in incomprehension because I, apparently I need to explain nothing. Um, and so I do. And I, my plan is basically this. Wherever this goes from here, Whatever Amanda's plan is, I am going to not respond. I am not going to play along. I am not going to protest. I am not going to be mean to her. I'm not going to uh, say anything rude. I am going to stand there when she brings me notes or like when she says anything to me, I'm just going to stand there and let her get it all out. And I'm going to give no response, no reaction whatsoever, say nothing, stand there and wait until it's over. And then I will politely and silently walk away. My hope being that after she has spent enough time like throwing this situation at a sort of fat, pimply Easter Island head who gives her nothing in return, that she will simply give up on this after a couple of days and she'll go away. All right? It is a brilliant plan. A brilliant plan uh, that does not work at all. Um... <laughs> Because over the next couple of days, Amanda just keeps it up. She just keeps coming with more notes and like coming up to me during like, after classes and saying, you know, you haven't responded to any of my notes and I really like you and my friends all want to know if you like me too. And she keeps doing this and like days are going by and she keeps doing it. And I'm like, why isn't this working? Because every time she comes up, I do the same thing. Stand there, stare at her, wait, 
When she's done, walk away. No effect whatsoever. Like, she, like she's still just having at it. And then one day, I realize that after she does this, she immediately goes over to her friends, and they whisper and laugh and giggle and point at me. And that's when I realize, oh, I'm not the target audience. My response is not what Amanda wants. It's her friend's response. That's what she's looking for. And that's what she's getting. And so over the next few days, she starts actually ramping things up. And pretty soon she's actually sending her friends over to give me notes and messages from her because what good is fun if you can't share with people you care about? Um, and at some point, she actually sends this kid over who I'm pretty sure was her actual boyfriend, this kid named Heath, who was a kind of like skater-jock hybrid and therefore as terrifying as he was paradoxical. Um, but he comes over, and, and Heath was a blunt instrument. Heath would have gladly beat the crap out of me for no reason whatsoever, but like this psychological warfare thing that Amanda was pulling off, he did not know what to do with that, and like she had given him lines, and so he like walks over and he's just not into it. And he gives me the, like, the most lackluster shove I have ever received from a bully. And he goes, hey man, uh, you better leave my girlfriend alone, fat ass. Like that. And I just, I do the same thing. I just stand there and stare at him and do nothing. And then one of Heath's friends comes running up and tells him there's an actual fight happening in the cafeteria. And Heath's eyes light up for the first time during the entire exchange. And he goes like racing to the carnage. And as he goes, I can see like Amanda standing in a distance. And she looks like put out that, you know, he has delivered such a lackluster performance. But then she turns to her friends and whispers and giggles and they laugh and they're back on track. But as I'm watching them whisper and giggle and laugh and get back on track, what I'm wondering is, does Amanda have any idea, does she realize at all that with all this was going on during Heath's lackluster performance and my standing there stoically the entire time, I am terrified. Because any interaction I have with a boy my age at this point often ends with a swing at my face. I get in so many fights these days, and I hate every single one of them. And this has been going on for so long, since the second grade when I first started to put on the weight, and I didn't know how to handle the teasing, and it all sort of like went in this spiral that I have not been able to pull out of ever since, and it's been six years of near total isolation. I leave school, and I see no one. I go home, I spend all of my time alone reading comic books or drawing, and then I go down to the woods that run through the subdivisions and try desperately to avoid the other kids because I am terrified of them. And at this point, though, I have begun to hit puberty. And with puberty, a sort of new dawning self-awareness has arrived. And with that self-awareness, there is now this feeling that accompanies the isolation and loneliness that is actual physical pain. Um, it is like there's a, a void, a hole has opened up in my center and is trying to drag the rest of me into it. And there have been times of late when I, I'll be down by the old playground where none of the other kids go anymore down in the woods and I will find myself kneeling on the grass doubled over in actual, literal, physical agony and I cannot get up, and I cannot move. But because of that self-awareness, there's now also a part of me that is detached and standing back and is fascinated that an emotion can cause this much actual pain. And it's around this time that I begin to have a certain fantasy, and the fantasy is this. I find Amanda's address in the phone book. Ask your parents what a phone book was. Um, <laughs> And I look it up, and it's easy to figure out like which house is her parents' 
house. And I have this fantasy that I will go over to her house and I will knock on the door and that she will come outside. And that maybe here, away from all the other kids and away from her friends, I can make her see me as a person who is in pain. And it is wintertime when this is happening, and there's not, we don't get a lot of snow in Missouri, but the, the sky turns this kind of hard slate gray, and it gets very low, and the grass turns brown, and it gets hard and cold, and that is always the backdrop for these fantasies, that hard slate Missouri sky hanging over us as we stand there in the front yard. And this fantasy, it ends in different ways. Uh, as I think about it, you know, sometimes she just sort of like nods and goes, okay, and lets me go, and like doesn't talk to me again for like the rest of the year, the rest of my life. Sometimes uh, she decides that I'm actually cool and we become secret friends. And sometimes because I am a 13-year-old boy and I am going through puberty and everything that Amanda is dangling in front of me is something I want more than anything, but it seems so, so far away from me right now. And so sometimes those fantasies end with her kissing me, a thing that is embarrassing to say even 30 years later. But I never do it. I never act on this fantasy. Uh, what I do instead is something really weird. Um, okay, I go back into school uh, one day, and, I, and I'm heading to uh, shop class, which I am failing miserably. I have been sitting in this shop class for a semester staring at a uh, table-mounted vice grip in, like, total incomprehension. Um, and that's what I'm going to do once again today. And I'm heading for shop class. Before I can get through the door, Amanda and her friends are there waiting for me. And she says, I, I, there's a dance on Friday. And I told my friends, you're going to take me to the dance. Are you going to take me to the dance? And I just stand there, say nothing, stare at her, don't respond. And she's like, I'm going to tell them you're going to take me to the dance. And she runs away and talks to her friends. And they laugh and they giggle and point at me. And then eventually at some point, I, you know, I, I wait to you know, see if she's ever coming back. And she's not, and I'm free to go. And so I kind of shrug like that table-mounted vice grip's not going to stare at itself. And uh, I turn, and I head into shop class, and I'm going, and as I'm walking away, I am very conscious of, like, Amanda and her friends standing in the doorway, staring at my back, and I'm very self-conscious about my body. I'm a fat kid, I'm, and I can't figure out, like, what do I look like from the back? What does my ass look like from the back? And it looks like the ass of a fat 13-year-old. That's what it looks like, and it's not great. And uh, I'm aware of that, and, like, the pressure of, like, them staring at me, and, like, all the isolation, all the sort of stress been under with all this situation, like, school, and everything just, like, sort of gets, like, on top of me all at once. I guess I just kind of broke for a minute because what I do is I, I do this little dance. Um, I am passing between these two tables, right? And as I get like right between them, I suddenly out of nowhere reach out, grab these two tables, sort of hop into the air and do this little like running man pogo uh, mashed potato kind of Alvin Ailey uh, thing. <laughs> that if I tried to repeat now would snap my spine. <laughs> and then I land and I kind of turn around and look at Amanda over my shoulder, give her a little smirk and a little eyebrow waggle, <laughs> and then turn back and head off to my table where the table mounted vice grip is sitting there. I sit down and I look at it. I'm trying definitely not to look at the doorway where Amanda and her friends are because I can see them on my peripheral vision and they're just drop-jawed because they don't know what that was. And I don't know what that was. 
Like, that was not a planned thing, and I don't know what it means, and neither do they. And, like, eventually, at some point, the bell rings, and they run off uh, to get to class, and I'm just sitting there through shop class going, like, this is not going to be good. Like, I'm, am I going to, like, come out of shop class, and Heath's going to be there? Like, you know, I wasn't inspired before, but then I heard about the little dance. And so now, you know, and, like, that's... Or it's like, what's going to happen when, when, like, this, like, when I have to go back out into the world? And uh, the bell rings and shop class is over and I walk out and there is no one there. Uh, no Amanda, none of her friends, no Heath. And in fact, I don't see them for the rest of the day. And the next morning comes and I come into school and I walk in and I, and I pass by Amanda and her friends and they do not make eye contact. Uh, they just look at their shoes and do not acknowledge me at all. And so whatever, like, I apparently, my, I have blown their minds. Um, they cannot handle this reality. Um, and they don't look up. And I just pass right by them. And that was it. I, they didn't talk to me again uh, for the rest of the year, for the rest of school. I never had another conversation with Amanda Stump. And I don't know... <laughs> What I learned from this, like it was not the end of my nerdery. I had another three solid years of that to go. And I don't know, maybe I learned, maybe I learned something about the power of self-expression. I'm not sure if I did. But you know what? I know for a fact Amanda Stump did. Thank you. Maybe I can pick on someone a little smaller than me. Hey! Pick on somebody your own size. What a dick. Sir, you're a real jerk. He's an asshole. Don't call me that. He's a shrimp boat. Don't call me that. He's a biscuit head. Don't call me that. He's a moron. Don't call me that. He's an asshole. Don't call me that. He's a shrimp boat. Don't call me that. He's a biscuit head. Don't call me that. He's a moron. Don't call me that. Granddad would slap you in the snot box talking like that. Whatever. It's fun to mess with people's heads, you know? She was just teasing us with her vulgar attitude. How are we supposed to respect you in the morning when you treat us like this? Huh? Well, if you have to pick on someone, I just as soon it was me. Don't tease me. Stop teasing me. Watch it. You're getting rude. Listen, you motherfucker. Don't you push me. Language, language. This is my house. What? Why do you find it so necessary to use vulgar words? Very goddamn funny. He's an asshole. Don't call me that. He's a shrimp boat. Don't call me that. He's a biscuit head. Don't call me that. He's a moron. Don't call me that. He's an asshole. That's Mr. Asshole you. Why don't you pick on someone your own side? What? Yeah, what kind of fucked up message is that? He's an asshole. Don't call me that. He's a shrimp boat. Don't call me that. He's a biscuit head. Don't call me that. He's a moron. Don't call me that. He's an asshole. Don't call me that. He's a shrimp boat. Don't call me that. He's a biscuit head. Don't call me that. He's a moron. Don't call me that. He's an asshole. Don't call me that. He's a shrimp boat. Don't call me that. He's a biscuit head. Don't call me that. He's a moron. Don't call me that. All right, this is a bit of a difficult one, so just bear with me. So when I was in fifth grade, I was obsessed with two things. The first thing I was obsessed with was Catholicism. I grew up in a very large Catholic family, and at the time, that was the most important thing in my life. The second thing I was obsessed with was sex. So I first learned about sex in fifth grade English class. The teacher turned on the smart board and started showing us, you know, these boring anatomy drawings of penises and vaginas and the like. And I was actually really fascinated because I'd never realized that my junk, like, had a purpose besides, like, bathroom stuff, you know? 
So I began kind of thinking of ways that I could learn more about sex. And that's where my cousin Amanda comes in. Amanda was a year older than me. She'd already gone through sex ed, and I thought she was the coolest person alive. She was so pretty. She was so cool. She was so nice. I was always worried that I would disappoint her somehow in conversation or, you know, let her down. So I decided that I would ask her all about sex. So we met up at the beach. And after playing on the beach all day, we would shower together. And that's when we'd bring the subject up. We had a code word for sex. It was monkeys. Not sure why. And so the water was really hot. And I would try and keep eye contact with her at all times because I didn't want to look at her body. I was very embarrassed. And also, she'd started developing breasts, and I hadn't. And I was super jealous. <laughs> so we would just talk and talk about all the stuff she'd learned and all the stuff I learned. And it was great. But eventually, we started to do more than talk about it. Uh, one day, Amanda led me into the bedroom I shared with her and my siblings and her siblings. And she took me up to the top bunk. I wasn't even allowed up there yet. And she said, hey, why don't we like practice having sex? Not real sex, you know, because girls can't have sex. But, you know, just practice for when we get married. And I actually thought this was a great idea. Um, I had crazy sexual performance anxiety as a child for some reason. And I was like, maybe Amanda can save me from being super embarrassed my first time with a guy, right? So I was like, sure, all right, uh, that's cool. And the other reason I went along with it was because I thought, well, you know, she's older than me. Maybe she picked up a few tips and tricks. Keep in mind, she was like in sixth grade. So... <laughs> Again, no idea. I actually like wasn't feeling super guilty about like practicing sex with her either. You'd think that somebody who was intensely religious would have had some qualms about it. But I was like, eh, you know, I feel like God will be fine with it because, hey, I need to practice so I know what to do to have some babies to raise as Catholics. <laughs> so, yeah. So I said, hey, sure, all right, that sounds great. And Amanda says, awesome. And she pushes me down on the bed, and she gets on top of me, and she starts kind of rubbing her legs up against my legs. And she's really into it. And I'm not as into it, because her jeans are very uncomfortable against my jeans, and it's not great. But then eventually she shifts, and I start to feel this buzzing sensation in my crotch, which I'd never really felt before, but it was good. So I was like, hey, nice. So I start like you know pushing back and... Eventually, I have my first orgasm. Didn't know what that was called. And, you know, this goes on for a little bit. But eventually, I leave the beach. And I go back to my own home. And I decide, you know, I really want to, like, feel that feeling again. Who else can I go to to see if I can, you know, practice? And I decided, hey. I should ask my younger sister. <laughs> so she was two years younger than me. She'd just taken her first sex ed class. And we shared a bedroom. So I was like, a hey, perfect opportunity. Um, and we didn't really have like a super close relationship, but we weren't enemies. It was just kind of like, uh, you know, your usual sibling relationship. So I asked her if she'd like to practice, and she was like, sure. So. We would do this mm, fairly regularly over a period of weeks. Um, 
we had bunk beds, so every night the lights would go out, I would climb up to her bunk bed, and we would make up little universes, like little porno universes, so that we wouldn't have to actually think about what we were doing. So, you know, I would be like, I don't know, Tom, a teacher, and she would be like, Janet, a student, and we would just like bone in the middle of class. So, <laughs> yeah. And this happened, you know, I had orgasms, she had orgasms, I assume. Um, and eventually I kind of started to realize that maybe this wasn't like a good thing that I was doing, and maybe I should stop and like feel guilty about it. And when that really hit home, it was one of the last times this had happened. I was kind of, you know, rubbing up and down against her because I still hadn't come. She had already finished. And, you know, I finally finish. I get off of her. She kind of looks over at me and she goes, uh, my leg's sore. And she doesn't say it in a rude or aggressive way. She just kind of says it a little passive aggressively. And that's when the guilt really hits me. And I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, that's when I realize maybe, you know, Jesus isn't super pleased with what I've been doing. So I move on to middle school. And in middle school, I meet my best friend, B. And B starts talking to me about, like, LGBT issues. I'd never heard of the gay community ever before then. And she starts talking to me about like how religion's kind of overrated, you know, and all these things I'd never been exposed to. And at the same time, the Catholic Church was telling me, hey, um, girls who have sex with girls and guys who have sex with guys are super immoral and wrong and they should die. And that was not great for my mental health. Because <laughs> around that same time, I figured out I was a lesbian. And I was really worried because I thought that maybe what I'd done with Amanda and then later with my sister had turned me gay. You know, I've got all this emotional baggage and I move on to high school. And in high school, I slowly start to come to terms with being a lesbian a little bit more. But this whole creepy sex background stays with me and keeps weighing on my conscience. I remember I was sitting with a group of friends. We were all working on a project together, and we were all laughing, having a good time, you know? And I suddenly realized that, hey, all of these people would hate me if they knew what I'd done to my sister. And, you know, this feeling continued on and on and on and on and on. I would be sitting in music class thinking about, wow, one day I want to be a famous musician and like tour and have fans and, you know, all that. And I would realize, nope, the music community would shun you if they found out what happened. And just nobody will ever love you, basically. So I had a lot of self-hate. And so one day I decided that the best way out of this, out of this horrible, gross feeling and out of God hating me forever is to kill myself. So I devise a plan. What I'm going to do is I'm going to sneak upstairs in the middle of the night, grab a knife from the kitchen knife block. I'm going to go out the back door. I'm going to put on this super emo death playlist that I'd made. <laughs> yeah. And I was going to like lie down behind the shed and try and slip my wrists and then just, you know, die. And I figured my horrible secret would die with me because my cousin and my sister wouldn't like tell anybody after I was dead, right? That would be creepy and weird. So I uh, emailed my best friend from middle school about something different but also depression-related, kind of mentioned, hey, I uh, want to die. And um, my mom intercepted it, <laughs> and she sent me to my therapist. 
and I hadn't seen my therapist for like ages, so that was uncomfortable. But after going to therapy, I slowly got rid of the suicidal ideation and, you know, became a little bit more okay with who I was as a person. Really finally fully accepted the lesbian thing. But I still wasn't coming to terms with this weird sexual stuff. I kind of figured I was super abusive for having done that. So I decided one day I should maybe talk to my therapist about it. So I'm sitting on the couch. She's directly across from me. I'm crossing and uncrossing my legs, staring out the window so I don't make eye contact with her. And I slowly begin to tell her what happened with me and Amanda, and then later what happened with me and my sister. And I'm fully expecting her to hate me and fully expecting her to say, oh God, you're disgusting, you know? But instead, she says, hey, that actually happens a lot with kids. That's normal. We don't know why it happens, but it does, and you shouldn't hate yourself for it. And that was revolutionary for me. I was finally able to come to terms with it, finally accept that, you know, I wasn't a bad person. So, I, thanks. <laughs> So um, I started telling other people about it, not, you know, just random people, but, you know, friends that had been with me through this, you know, horrible high school depression experience thing. And I actually got really positive feedback from them, not necessarily because of what had happened, obviously, but because I was finally deciding to be open about something and deciding not to, you know... I have this crazy, intense self-hatred, you know, that I'd held for years and years. <laughs> yeah, so, sorry. <laughs> and uh, I don't think I'll ever bring it up to my sister ever again. I mean, after we really stopped doing it, I, you know, apologized over and over and over again, night after night after night. Finally, she told me, hey, I don't want to talk about it anymore. And so, you know, I've come to terms with it. But I'm gonna, you know, leave it to her, have her, you know, take her own time figuring it out. And if she wants to come and talk to me about it, she can, and I'm open to that. I just don't wanna fuck things up more than I already have. <laughs> and uh, as for Catholicism and that whole God hating me thing, I am actually not practicing anymore, so <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> and that's my story. <laughs> took one look at my face and said I can fix that hole in you I beg your pardon I'm not looking for a cure I've seen enough of my friends in the depths of the God sick blues you know I am alive you know
This is Risk. This is Jenny Lewis behind me now, and it was a Risk fan named Nick Alexander who first alerted me that I might want to put this song on the show someday. And we just heard from a young lady named Elena, who was a first-time storyteller. She had never gotten up on stage or done anything like that before. And uh, that was when we were last in Washington, D.C. She did a really beautiful job with that. And before Elena, we heard a little interstitial from our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Now I want to talk to you about, you know, audiobooks are great for helping you to be a better you, whether you want to feel healthier or get motivated or learn something new. And with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more, Audible has all the audio content you need to start your year on the right foot. There's so many books by risk contributors. There's The Year of Living Biblically by A.J. Jacobs, or Bad Kid by David Crabb, or Screw Everyone by Ophira Eisenberg, or Attempting Normal by Mark Maron. There's plenty of self-help books there, too, or books on how to do storytelling, like Long Story Short by risk contributor Margot Lightman, or The Story Factor by Annette Simmons. Whether it's on your phone, through your car, from a tablet, or at home on an Amazon Echo, you can get through tons of books while doing almost anything. And Audible even lets you switch seamlessly between devices, picking up exactly where you left off. So start a 30-day trial, and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash risk, or text risk to 500-500. That's audible.com slash risk, or text RISK to 500-500 for a 30-day trial and your first free audiobook. You can do it with audiobooks. Also, buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated and confusing, but there's a better way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning the night out, or you need to find the perfect gift, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I just put the SeatGeek app on my phone this weekend, and it is the easiest way that I've found to shop for tickets. I can get anywhere with just a few taps and instantly find good seats. I just use it to buy tickets to um, the boys in the band, which is going to be on Broadway again in April. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. It saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find good deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app to finding the best deals of every type of ticket for sports and concerts, comedy, and theater. Best of all, Risk listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code RISK today. That's the promo code RISK for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. 
Our final story this week comes to us from one of our favorites, David Crabb. I mentioned his amazing book, Bad Kid, when we were talking about things that are available on Audible earlier. He also teaches storytelling for us at thestorystudio.org. But here he is at a recent live show at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles, where we do the show once a month. It's David Crabb with a story we call Follow Me. Let's build ourselves a fire. So about two years ago, I'm on an airplane with my husband, Jack, and our little uh, Chihuahua Jack Russell, uh, Charlie. Um, he is under the seat in front of us. Uh, he's high on Benadryl because we're flying, and he looks like an extra from Cheech and Chong. It's my favorite. Fa- he's like, hey, like when he's high. He's like, pen, chilled out. I'm stressed out because I'm a bad flyer anyway, but the flight attendant is doing that thing they do at the top when they're like all rouge with a French twist and red lipstick, and they're like, in the event of an emergency, follow the lit lights. You know, whenever they do that, I'm like, fuck you. There's no like, through the fog of the fire, like you're just dead in the sky. Do you know what I'm saying? There's no like, casually make your way to the raft. Like, I hate that, right? I'm stressing out because I'm a stressful flyer, and I'm also anxious because this is not a normal flight. This is not a round-trip flight. This is a one-way flight from New York, where I've lived for 17 years. We are moving to Los Angeles, and uh, my husband and I have wanted to move to Los Angeles for a long time. Every time I visit my home state, Texas, every time I'm there, like, I feel this weight come off me. Like, I can get behind the wheel of a car. I can see horizon lines. I can smell flowers. You know what I mean? And I also have Crohn's disease, so like every winter or when it's rainy, I get like weird arthritis. I become like an angry, like a Vietnam vet, like a storms are coming. Like I just become a cranky asshole, right? And I just want to move. And I know it's the best thing, but I can't help but think because my engine is fear and anxiety that this is the worst mistake. I am gripping my husband Jack's hand so tight and he leans over to me and he just very sweetly says, Davey, this is what we want. This is what we've wanted. This is awesome. And I'm like, you're right. My husband has a 13-year history of being the voice of reason. We dated for, like I said, 13 years. The first year, I broke up with my husband, Jack, three times. And when people meet him and they see him, they're like, David, you broke up with him? Um, my husband looks kind of like peak era Rock Hudson mixed with George Clooney. Uh, he's very hot. Uh, he's kind. He's warm. Um, I, I always like to say that the six years I was in college and grad school, I didn't get laid. So I kind of feel like it was like the karma gods of romance and sex were like, whoa, boy, you've had a dry county. How about this? Thank you. I think the reason that I broke up with him three times is because Being with him was so easy. He was so kind and warm. There was no drama. Like, I think when I was young and I envisioned moving to New York, I was going to date, like, a really emotional junkie painter. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, he was going to, like, emotionally be abusive, but he was going to be so passionate for painting and me and drugs. You know, like, it was going to be amazing. A whirlwind of emotion. And I think the thing with Jack is just that it was just so 
calm. It was so wonderful to be around him. And luckily, I learned the error of my ways. You know, we were together 13 years, 11 before we got married. And over that amount of time, he has, like I said, been the voice of reason all the time. Like, I would say, oh, babe, you know, like, I have to go to this party tonight, but like, I'm having a Crohn's flare. I feel really sick. I have a fever. And he'll be like, why don't you just not go to the party? It sounds like you're sick. And I'll be like, I don't have to go to the party. You know what I mean? Like, I told him once, I was like, uh, a few years ago, I was like, I had this opportunity to write a book, but I've never written a book. I can't do that. And he's like, okay, babe, well, by your logic, no book would ever exist, because uh, everyone has to write a first one. And I was like, you are right. I should write a first book. Or, you know, I've had a 104-degree fever, and it feels like someone's been stabbing me in my abdomen on the right side for like two days, but I've got a bronze health plan right now, and I think I should wait this one out. He's like, go to the fucking hospital. And they're like, we've got to take your appendix out right now, Mr. Crab. And I'm like, thanks, babe. <laughs> a few years ago, we went to see a production of Sleep No More. I don't know if you guys know what Sleep No More is. It is this um, New York production. It's amazing. If you were a 16-year-old goth kid, you need to go do this. Um, Sleep No More is this immersive art piece. Uh, it is in a four-story warehouse, and it's basically like a goth dance piece, very foggy, velvet interpretation of Shakespeare's Macbeth. Uh, he knew I wanted to go. It was my birthday, and uh, we went in, and we went to the bar. So when you get there, you go to this bar. Everything is red velvet. There's fog. There's a very handsome British man with an old-timey microphone and a live jazz band. And all of the bartenders and cocktail waiters are like environmental actors. They have like smeared mascara and corsets, and they're trying to be real sexy. Like, do you just want a tequila? And they're like writhing on the bar, and I'm just like, just give me my fucking drink. Like, but it's cute, and I'm into it, and I'm really enjoying it. And at a certain point, they finally say, well... It's time to go into the elevator. So you go like cattle, like 20 at a time into this elevator where you're given these masks. Because you have to experience the whole show through this white, weird mask, which just has eye holes in it. It's kind of terrifying. And you're not allowed to speak. Everyone's like, don't speak, don't speak. So we're in the elevator, and the sexy environmental elevator operator, and of course it's like, you might want to talk in the show. If you become frightened, look for the exit lights. And I'm kind of like, fuck you. I'm not going to get frightened of like fucking Shakespeare. Like I watched Faces of Death videos when I was nine. Like this is nothing, right? On the second floor, he cranks open the door, and this guy walks out into just blackness and fog, and then as he turns around, the elevator operator stops us, and he slams shut the door and cackles. And I'm like, this is terrifying, and I love it. I'm like, I'm in. Maybe you are going to scare me. So we get to the fourth floor. He opens the door, and we all go off. I get out of the elevator. There's a creepy cemetery. There's fog everywhere. I take a left, and I realize I don't know where my husband Jack is, and I turn, and he's gone right. So we're like 15 feet apart. And we look at each other, and without saying anything, just through our little eye holes, we both agree to do it alone. And we nod. Yes. So I walk through the creepy cemetery. I walk through a creepy, like, electroshock chamber. There's, like, a strange room that just has a bunch of empty porcelain bathtubs. There's scary music playing. I can't see my hand in front of my face. I love it. I end up in this main square where there's sort of like all these shops. There's like a seamstress and a library. There's like a spooky store where there's like a baby skeleton in a glass jar, you know, really creepy, right? As I'm looking through this book, because you can touch everything. It's beautifully designed. You can touch all the books. You can like handle everything. This gorgeous black woman in like a blood-soaked white wedding gown comes screaming down the hallway, ah! And like all the people around me, like 40 of them in their little white masks, they just run after her, right? And I just am like, mm, I don't do crowds, no, no. 
And I flick the pages, and as two more people, there's like a handsome blood-covered man comes screaming, there's another different woman in a white bloody gown comes screaming. I'm just like, no, that looks, I'm gonna have my own journey. Um, I'm gonna read these measurements of strangers in this antique seamstress book, right? 40 minutes later, I am pissed off. There's been no action. I'm sitting in this library next to another girl in her white mask who, her body language lets me know she's made the same choice I have, and it's probably wrong. Uh, We are bored, and we are watching a woman dust. Uh, She is an actress in the show. She looks like the maid in, like, Rebecca. Um, She's, like, dusting, and we've been watching her for, like, 20 minutes. And um, finally, all of a sudden, at one point, the maid turns to us, and she just, like, gestures to us and says, follow me. So me and the girl, we have like excited eyes through our little eye holes, and we run after the maid, right? So we follow the maid up all these flights of stairs to the top again, and the maid stops at this black door and tells us to wait, and then she goes in the room, she slams the door, and inside we hear, I don't even want to, and then the glass shatters, and me and the other bored girl, we're just like little eye holes looking at each other, like, oh my God, what's happening? Finally, the door opens, and the maid comes out, and she looks at us, and she says, very like high drama, she's like, are you ready to see the most exciting thing. And me and the bored girl, we nod our big white mask, yes. The maid opens the door, the girl goes in in front of me, and then I go to walk in and the maid stops me, she puts her finger in my chest and she says, not you, and slams the door in my face. And I'm like, fuck you, I am so pissed. I charge back towards the bar because I'm just ready to buy another $47 Manhattan. I don't care about this stupid show which costs so much money to get in. And I sit at the bar and I lift my mask up and I'm just like chugging whiskey. And after about 20 more minutes, it's intermission. So all the people come with their masks to the bar and I look and I see Jack and he comes over to me and uh, he's like, Davey, how was your experience? I'm like, it was okay. How was yours? And he says, Well, first, this beautiful male dancer covered in muscles in this wet tuxedo pulled me into a phone booth. He lifted my mask, kissed me on the cheek, and whispered into my ear, last night I dreamt of your cock on my lips. (laughs) And then, Davy... He took me by the shirt and he led me down a hallway into this white tiled bathroom where me and two other men in masks watch him strip naked and take a shower in what seems like baby oil totally naked. (laughs) And then when he was done showering and he was just crying all flexed on the white tiles, he had us dry him off and put his clothes on. I put his pants on him. Then we followed him into a huge room where me and like 200 other people in white masks watch a pack of androgynous demons strip him naked again and molest him on a pool table while a strobe light flashed and dubstep played. (laughs) And then, Davey, I wandered into this empty bar covered in spider webs and I sat there alone And the boy came out from behind a curtain, dripping wet. And while he wept, he sang just to me a version of Peggy Lee's Is That All There Is? (laughs) Davey, what was your experience? And I was like, I watched some chick catch up on her housekeeping. I watched someone fucking dust. 
I freak out, I'm so mad, and I go to the bathroom, and I'm just so pissed, and when I come back, Jack has been talking to one of the sexy environmental bartenders, right? And apparently, he's given some information. So when the second half of the show starts, Jack's like, babe, I want you to follow me, just stay with me. So we go back into the show, and we stand on this corner, and for 10 minutes, there's stuff happening, crowds walk by, I'm like, babe, what are we doing? Why are we standing here? And he's like, just wait. And all of a sudden, this beautiful muscle-covered dancer comes around the corner, pulling a guy from a curtain that's a phone booth, and we follow him. And we go into this white tile bathroom, and me and Jack and two other people, we watch him take a shower. He's fucking gorgeous and naked. It's so surreal and weird. I feel like a pervert, and I love it. He has us dry him off. He has us put his pants on. And then he says, follow me. And we go into this room, and we watch the boy get naked again while these androgynous demons sodomize on our pool table to dubstep, and there's a strobe light. And then we walk into this, like, haunted bar covered in spiderwebs and just me and Jack sit while this boy looks at us and sings, is that all there is to a fire? It is fucking amazing. The show's over and we're walking home and I feel like I'm not leaving a show like I'm leaving a world and me and Jack are talking like, what is the symbolism? What does it mean? And as we're talking, it hits me that like, Jack had like a whole other half of the show to see. Like there were people getting electroshock, taking sexy baths, I don't know what he missed, but he decided to do it all again with me. And as he's talking, it sort of breaks my heart because I also realized this is just another time where he showed me like the most obvious thing. Do you know what I mean? Like he was just like, babe, just do what they say. On the airplane, we finally take off. We leave New York and as we're flying south because we're gonna go to Texas, the pilot starts to turn around and he goes back north over Manhattan and he gets lower. And I'm holding Jack's hand really tight. I can hear Charlie panting under the seat. And I start to worry, right? Because my engine is anxiety and fear and I'm stressed out. And then the plane gets lower and it turns over Manhattan again. And I feel like I want to cry. I'm like, this is just my luck. This is what happens with me trying to leave New York after 17 years. I'm going to die in a terrible plane terror attack. That's what I'm actually thinking. I look to Jack to tell him, like, I love you, and I'm so sorry this has happened to us. And when I do, he's looking out the plane window, and he just says, oh, Davey, the pilot's letting us say goodbye. Ugh, just waterworks. Like, I just, I just, like, I start crying so intensely at that moment, right? And he's like, what were you thinking? I was like, we were going to die in a terror attack. And he's like, what the fuck is wrong with you, baby? And the answer is a lot is wrong with me. And, and I look around and like, of course, the pilot said we were 40 minutes early. They never like raised the lights in the cabin. Of course, the pilot was letting everyone like say goodbye to New York, all these tourists. Jack has always done that for me. You know, if you want to move to a city and you know someone that has a spare bedroom and they're like, hey, I live in Silver Lake. And if you want to move and stay in my room as long as you want for free, you're supposed to fucking do that. Do that. If this hot six and a half foot tall guy that looks like Rock Hudson leaves you like soup and a mix CD when you have the flu, even though you're just avoiding intimacy, fucking date him. Don't be a moron. And if you pay 200 bucks for a show and a gorgeous blood-soaked woman streams past you literally screaming, follow me, follow her because you might see a beautiful, muscle-bound boy stripped naked and sodomized by demons on a pool table to dubstep. (laughs) Sometimes you just have to follow the directions. Thanks.
Let's start living dangerously That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is DNCE behind me now. I always say that, uh, you know, we don't do so much top 40, but this song went to number nine. We just heard from David Crabb, who you can find online at davidcrabb.net. And hey, speaking of getting things up there on the charts... We want you to get The Risk Book up on the charts by going to theriskbook.com and pre-ordering. Pre-order your book right now, motherfuckers, and have all your friends do it too. Because if we get a lot of pre-orders, then we'll really make a splash when the book finally comes out on July 17th. David Crabb will be in the book. The book will include many of the very favorite stories that have ever been shared on the show, but edited with some new parts and interviews with the storytellers and stories you've never heard on the show before. So it's a really fascinating new way into the stories. And I think that you and lots of your friends are going to love it. So go pre-order now at theriskbook.com. The next live shows I want to bring everyone's attention to are March 17th, when Risk will be live in LA at the Bootleg Theater again. Brian Babylon, Jen Curran, Matt Kirshen, and Sarah Faith Alterman will be there. That will be a remarkable show. Then on March 22nd, we're back at Caveat in New York City. Amy Gordon, Fran Tirado, and uh, Jezebel Express will be doing the show that night. So fantastic shows. March 17th in LA, March 22nd in New York. You can find out more at risk-show.com slash tour. Remember, nothing is more important to us than word of mouth. If you love Risk, please introduce it to some friends. Uh, Tell them how and when and where they can download the show. Share some of our best of Risk episodes with them. And talk us up online on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. We're at Risk Show. Another way to support us is, of course, to go to patreon.com slash risk and become one of our patrons. Then you'll get a chance to get all of our bonus content there. The first two years of the show, plus our all-star episodes, and even bonus stories that we put up a couple times a month, and the ad-free versions of these episodes. That is all at patreon.com slash risk. Finally, 
If you're interested in storytelling education, either for your personal life, your creative life, or even your business, you can find us at thestorystudio.org. All kinds of workshops, one-on-one training, corporate workshops, it's all right there at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. (laughs) Take a risk. guessed it it's that time it's time for us to listen to the song the lions and the cucumber from the 1971 west german film vampire lesbians while i read to you the names of the people who participated in our contest last week was you know we asked people to pre-order the risk book and then email me the proof that they had pre-ordered the book and i'm gonna choose three winners but here's the people who didn't win (laughs) Teresa Lucido, Ian W., Molly Stratton, Cece Cholst, Richard, oh, Richard, Jessica Olson, Steve Gadlin, Laura Fry, Sarah Tothero, Adam Schaefer, Allison Rose, Becky McKenna, Andrew Hainbutt, Nicole Mickelson, Hugo Dahl, Sam Burns, Carter Moon, John Schaller, Jen Grippa, Oscar, Stephanie Blackman, Lena Raffaelli. Zach Revin Ravine Alan Weber Kite Schwartzlos Lauren Guavel Coda Morrison Ashley Marriott Jasper Hawkins Rose O'Neill Shauna Kozegi Johan Pedersen Sheena Langle David Swarthout, Kate Gillerin, Ramsey's Calcid Castle Duke, uh, Brandon Reeves, Christina DeSantis, Jessica Torres, Tash Wark, Eva S, Jenny Moe, uh, Danny Ortiz, Sophie Bamonte, Anna Hyder. And Amanda Hog. Thank you so much to all of you. We hope you enjoy the book, and we hope anyone else listening pre-orders the book any goddamn way. To the three people who won, well, you got something else coming entirely. Good night, and don't get... Gangrene.